1 Corinthians chapter 2, and also John chapter 15. You can, I've got them both written down here on the board so you can take a look at them and, and uh, know that you aren't going to miss anything. We're living in a pretty interesting time in today's day and age. And uh, I, I would say that in the United States of America, uh, as it is uh, today, I, I say that I would say that um, belief in God, belief in Christ, in the United States of America is probably at an all-time low um, and trending downwards. Um, in fact, if I were to have a show of hands here today to ask how many of you have a family member or maybe a close friend who doesn't even believe in God, you know, I think all of us would raise our hands. I think probably all of us would raise our hands. I'm, okay, let's do it. How many of you guys have that? Just, yeah, I, I just wanted you to all raise your hands. <laughs> you get some pastors and they get people to interact with them, you know, and I'm jealous of that, so raise your hand, you know. Hey, if you're here at Calvary Chapel today, raise your hand. All right, good, 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 good. A, pre -re uh, a Pew Research poll back from uh, 2007, it was taken uh, from 2007 to 2014, across, taken a, across the United States. Um, they have a very broad definition of what Christianity is. In fact, um, they even incorporate what I would consider even cults in this. I would think, you know, you know Mormonism, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are a form of, they, they, they have a, f a form of Christianity, and yet they are outside of the realm of what I believe is true biblical uh, truth. Um, and I would consider them personally a cult. I don't have time to get into whys today, but I would consider them cults. Well, they're included into the... Uh, statistics of them being Christians. And so, according to this uh, Pew Research poll, 70.6 uh, 70 to 78.4% of the people in the United States of America claim to have some form of, uh, belonging to some form of Christianity. Uh, It includes, you know, Christian in, in Christianity, such as evangelical Protestants, mainline Protestants, black Protestants, Catholic, Mormon, Orthodox Christians, Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, there are non-Christian faiths, such as Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, and a spattering of, of, of other faiths out there. They make up for another 5.9% here in the United States. But there is another group set that I would call the nuns, the nuns, not the N-U-N-S, but the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. These are those that are not affiliated with any religion whatsoever and just not necessarily say I don't believe in God, but they just don't, they don't know anything about God, they just don't believe in him. It's not that they are atheists per se. Now, some of these are atheists, but for the most part, there's some of these that just go, you know, uh, they're, they're agnostic. They just don't know that there is a God. Agnostic means, you know, without knowledge. Ah is the without. It's the negative symbol. Um, and, and gnostic literally means to know. Uh, without knowledge. Without knowledge. An atheist would be, theism would be, speaking of God or deity, speaking of, of God, atheism, atheism, ah means the negative side of that. And so it's without God. I don't believe in God. Atheism, I don't believe in God. Agnostic, I don't know that there's a God. I don't believe that there, I don't know if there's a God. It's not that I believe that he is or he isn't. I just don't know. I'm an agnostic. The nuns non-affiliated with any religion or God, in 2007, that number was 16.1%. 16.1%. In 2014, that number rose to 22.8%. So we had an increase of 6.1%. Uh, 
7%. I had to do that math. I didn't write that down. 6.7%. Yeah. But you think about that. 6.7% of an increase of anything in a seven-year period is phenomenal. When you talk about the broad scope of the United States of America, you know, you, you take, you take uh, you know, 100,000 people and 7% of that 100,000 is 7,000 people. You take 100 million people and that number jumps. And then you take into consideration we have like what 324 million people something like that here in the United States of America. And and all of a sudden that number jumps quite a bit when you just consider 7%. And that's just the change. That's just the change. If if you look at it and say okay, uh uh 200 or 324 million or 300 million, let's just use that as a good number. 300 million people here in the United States, 22% of them don't believe in God. That's a lot of people. A lot of people, 22%. And and, and so we we look at that and we go, wow. What's happening? What's happening is that we're digressing quite rapidly. We're digressing quite rapidly. Christianity in 2007 was at 78.4%, those who affiliated with the Christian faith. I didn't read my notes correctly. And then in 2014, it was actually 70.4%. And so Christianity has fallen... By 7.8% in seven years, and the nuns have increased by 6.7%. Christianity's falling away. Those who don't affiliate with anything are increasing. And I don't see that trend snapping anytime soon. I see it digressing quite a bit and continuing to digress. Well, what do we do? What do we do in a, in a case like that? What, do, what is it that we, that we are supposed to, to, to do in a case like that? What, what is it that, that we're supposed to, 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 to interact? How are we to interact with the people? How are we going to get people to believe in God? Do we need to take more classes to define who God is and to argue why God is and to, and to argue more about who God is, to debate more about who God is? Or what do we do? Well... I think that what we've tried to do, the apologetics movement, is a great thing. I, I, I don't want to step on the toes of those who were called into apologetics ministry. And apologetics is almost a misnomer. Where it's kind of a, 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 a bad word. Not a bad word, but it's, it's, it's kind of a... Uh, it's a word that, to me, used to cause confusion. Because when you think of apologetics, it's like... I'm apologizing for being a Christian. That's not what apologetics means. I'm apologizing for being a Christian. And yet, I think that that's kind of what has happened and what has begun to happen in the United States. Not just begun, but has been, it's kind of got a steamroll on this. We kind of apologize because we're Christians. Apologetics is the defending of the faith. It's the defending of the reasons why you believe. It's the defending of the Christian faith. This is why I believe. This is how I believe. These are some doctrinal proofs and truths that I, that I espouse. There are some archaeological findings that support my cause. Here are some things that I can consider when I look at the stars and I, I go out there and I speak of the heavens and I look at the, at, at, at the universe that's around us and this is what the Word of God says about it, and this is what we see in the universe, and this is what science says, and this is what the Bible says, and this is why I believe that the Bible is more correct than science. And so apologetics, there's a real need and a purpose for that. But I think that we've tried to look at, and I'm guilty of it, I got to know a man that was quite possibly the smart, he was, not, not even arguably, he was the smartest man I've ever met in my life. But arguably, he was one of the smartest, most intelligent men that, upon the face of this earth 
in the time that he was living. His name was A. E. Wilder Smith. Got a little book over here. No, it's not a little book. It's a big book. A. E. Wilder Smith. He was, in a, he was a Christian. He was a guy that, that studied under, you know who his mentor was? C.S. Lewis. Isn't that cool? He was a scientist, doctor, everything that you know, everything that you could, I mean, his brain was crazy. Smart. I mean, he ran in circles that, that we'd read of, you know. He debated in the Ivy League schools, and no one would want to debate him. He was that smart. They're like, yeah, I'm not touching that guy. He's going to make me look like a fool. And he was such a sweet old man. He was old when he came to the Bible college out in California. In fact, when we put him up on the, on the pulpit, I almost felt like, like, you know, bungee taping, you know, bungee cording his hands to the pulpit so he wouldn't fall over. I'm thinking, man, don't let this great mind die on us, you know. If he's going to pass away, let him go somewhere else so that we're not known as, hey, that's the place that Dave Wilder Smith passed away. But he was such a gentle, kind, funny man. He came to the Bible college and he says, and he, he was from Switzerland. He says, now it's my job to come into a place not knowing the audience and find out how deep the water is. That's my European accent, so. He says, he says, so my job is to find out what you know. And then he just laid out this like 15 sentence thing that is, I don't even know the words that he was using. And he said, who understood that? And nobody raised his hand. He goes, okay. And then he went down to something else. And he went down something. I understood a couple words. And he, he's like, how many understood that? He goes, pond's not too deep today. You know? <laughs> and then he went down to, how many of you understand Mary, Mary had a little lamb or something like that? And we go, oh, hey, we do. He goes, okay, I don't, I'm not going to get my socks wet today. <laughs> you know? and, and he was like, we just got mocked and we're having a great time. This is great. I mean, the guy was, he was smart. But I mean, here's the thing. But he was just joking with us. But then he began to give such phenomenal uh, message and, and knowledge. He was the foremost man, uh, foremost mind on the AIDS epidemic at the time that he was alive. The guy had, he was always studying. His, he and his wife, Beatrice, she was uh, captured. She was one of the, captured by the Nazi Germans. And she was a prisoner. Their story was fascinating. I ate lunch with him quite a few times while he was there with us at the Bible college. And, and I'm thinking, I'm probably the uh, smallest fish you've ever been around. And yet this guy, he says, now you're going to, uh, you and Dave are going to be going to Israel later. Uh, yes. He goes, stop by Switzerland. Come by my house and stay. I'm going, you're inviting, A. Wilder Smith is inviting me to his house. He goes, oh yes. Well, what we'll do is, I'll take you up skiing. I said, you ski? <laughs> he goes, oh no, 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 I can't ski anymore. And, but I'll take you skiing and I'll watch. And no, you don't even want to see that. I don't, you don't want to do that. But, but here's the thing, he's inviting, well, what? and he's going, wow. Now there was a place and a purpose for a man like that. I mean, he could sit there and he could talk. I mean, he would, he would talk on a line with, with a Dawkins and a Hawking. In fact, I think it was Dawkins. It wasn't Dawkins, it was Sagan, Carl Sagan. You remember? Carl Sagan. That said, I am not touching that guy. The guy will make me look like a fool. He would never debate Dr. A. Wilder Smith because A. Wilder Smith was smarter than Sagan. And, and so... There's a place and a purpose for apologetics, but I think that we as Christians, we've, we've, we begin to fall back on, we've got to explain why the Bible is correct. We've got to explain who God is. We've got, to, we've got to prove God's existence. We've got to prove all of these things in order for people to, to understand God, that they can take it out and they can play with it like science can. We need to be able to have something tangible in our hands that, that we can hold on to so that the world would go, oh, well, okay, I'll believe in God because I can, I can hold him. 
I can touch him. I can feel him. It reminds me of the story of the professor that was uh, teaching in a college, and he had this old, uh, he had this this uh, young, I'm sorry, young Amish fellow that was in his his uh, class. But he was had to take this this class, this uh, biology class, and this professor is in here, and he knew that this Amish fellow was a, a believer. And out of the class of you know 400 there in his big university, he said, "Now, how many of you are believers in God?" And this is the only one that really kind of raised his hand and kind of stayed there holding his hand up when he gave everybody a litany of questions to find out how deep they loved God. This fellow was there and he kept his hand up and the professor goes, okay, it's you and I. Let me ask you a question. Can you see God? And the Amish fellow says, nay. He goes, can you smell God? The Amish fellow said, nay. He says, can you touch God? And the Amish fellow said, nay. And he says, based upon scientific proof, there is no God. According to you, there is no God. According to science, we cannot prove that there's a God because we cannot see, we cannot feel, we cannot smell God, and so therefore God does not exist. So you may have your seat. The Amish fellow said, excuse me, sir, no disrespect, but may I counter? Sure. This will be fun. He goes, Professor, can thou see thy brain? He says, no. Can thou smell thy brain? No. Can you smell thy brain? Well, no, not mine. I mean, you could really cut it up. He goes, well, then, Professor, how is it that we can tell that you have a brain? Apologetics is great. But trying to prove something, well, you see, that's, that's counter to what the Word of God says. You know what Hebrews chapter 11 says. Here, let me read it to you. Hebrews chapter 11 says this. You know, it's the very first verse. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Let me read that again. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You see, we don't get to heaven based upon a factual, you know, I have to be able to feel it, see it, smell it, touch it. How we get to heaven is we receive Christ by faith. I, I can't, I can't, I wasn't there when it happened. I would believe it at that time. I wasn't there when creation began. I would have believed it if I would have seen it. You remember Jesus was talking to Thomas as, as we can fall in line and we can fall into that, that same mentality of Thomas. He goes, you know what, here's the thing. Jesus dies, he, he rises again from the dead, and, and, and Judas has died. There's 12 disciples, of which Judas is dead, so now there's 11. But now there's only 10 in the upper room when Jesus meets them the very first time, and Thomas is not with them. And so he meets with the 10 disciples, and they're blown away that Jesus is alive again. What do they do? They see him, they physically can smell him, and they physically can touch Jesus. Is it, is it a fact to them? Yes, it's a fact to them. And what they do is they see and they have this little conversation with Jesus and then he says, you know, hey, I'm going to meet you again and, and, and they end up, he departs and they depart and they go and find Thomas. They say, Thomas, you blew it, man. If you were with us, you would have seen Jesus. And Thomas goes, uh, you guys are messing with me. Now this is a Don version of how it all happened, Okay. You guys are messing with me. No, 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 Thomas, Thomas, really, Jesus was there. We saw him. You know what? You guys are cruel. Do you not know how hard my heart was ripped out of my chest when he went to the cross? And you guys are playing jokes like this on me now? How dare you? Thomas, he was alive. We saw him. 
You guys are evil and you're mean. How horrible can you be? I, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to believe until I take my finger and put it into his hand, or into his hands, the holes in his hand, or my hand and stick it into the side where the lance went. I'm not going to believe until I actually see this myself. Now, there's no convincing somebody in that kind of an instance. Well, the very next scene, you think Thomas ever missed the house meeting ever again? <laughs> I don't think so. Thomas was there. Eleven disciples in the room. Door was locked. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears to him. And they all turn around. They see Christ. And there he is. Jesus didn't say anything to any other disciples. He says, Thomas, come here. Take your finger and put it into my hands. And take your hand and put it into my side. Thomas doesn't even get to Jesus before he falls on the ground. And he says, the Lord of me and the God of me. My Lord and my God. He cries out to Jesus, it's real. And what do you remember what Jesus said? He says, he says, Thomas, because you see, you believe. Can I tell you this? More blessed are they who believe without seeing. Now, I am one that can honestly say in my life, I've never seen Jesus. I've never felt him and I've never touched him. I've never smelt him. I, 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 maybe you have. I know that, that I have had what I believe are conversations with the Lord in times of my life. I shared my testimony uh, you know, a few weeks ago. I believe that I had a quick conversation as I was falling out of the air in an airplane with the Lord. That's always a place to have a conversation with the Lord. It's a good time. And, and, and I had this conversation with the Lord but I didn't hear his voice. He didn't say, hey, Don. Yeah. I, I didn't have that kind of a conversation. It was something that was happening down deep in my spirit. I don't, I don't know. If I heard it audibly or, or inside, I don't know. But it was a real conversation I had with the Lord. So did I, is there something factual about that? Well, to me, it's something that God did in my heart, in my mind, in my spirit. But I've never physically handled Christ. And, and so here's the thing. Maybe that's like you also. Well, here's the thing. Jesus says, you know, you're more blessed than Thomas. You're more blessed than the other ten disciples. You're more blessed than Paul. Because you know what? You're carrying on the banner of Christ without ever seeing him. Why? Because you believe him in faith. It's faith, faith, faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Pastor Chuck used to say, who was my pastor out in California, started all the Calvaries many, many, many years ago, and he used to say, faith is the substance, or no, I'm sorry, faith is the currency of heaven, and God wants us to be wealthy people. The point is, have faith, faith, faith. Well, here's the problem. You're going, where are we going with this? Well, here's where we're going. We're going to get there. A little choo-choo train that can. You know, we're getting up that hill. Here's the thing. We're never called to make someone believe because of all the facts. You know what we're to do? We're called to go out into the world and spread the good news. We're called to go out into the world and tell people what God has done in our life. We're called to go out there and share with them our testimony. We're called to go out there and be a representative of Christ. That's what we're called to do. And here in just a few minutes, I'm going to, uh, in the time that I have remaining, I, 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 I hope that this all comes together for you and releases so many of us. And I know some of you guys have heard me talk about this a, a little bit before, but here's the thing. Hopefully it releases a lot of us from this, this unbiblical responsibility that we place upon our shoulders in trying to get people saved. God has never told you to save anyone. I can't do it. You can't do it. We can't do it. Salvation is a work of God. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that here in just a second. And so here's the thing. Though the world is saying, well, I don't believe in God. Well, I don't have to prove to them that there is a God. 
Here's what I have got to do. I've got to live Jesus to them. I've got to be Jesus to them. I've got to live my life uncompromisingly before God. We'll pick it up here in verse 1 of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. Here's Paul. Paul comes in and he goes, Listen, I, brethren, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. I'm not here to, to point out facts and this and that, and I'm not trying to sway you into, the he- into heaven because of my persuasive words. He goes, Here's the thing, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if that was the period to the end of the sentence, that's all we'd need to know. That is our, you know, people go, what's your vision here at this church? Well, our vision is to open the Bible and read the Bible, do what the Bible says, and go and present the Bible, you know, the word of God to people that they might be saved like we are, you know? Why no, but what's your big vision? That's it. That's it. Do you have like a vision statement? To know Christ and Him crucified. Yeah, but I mean, come on. What, what is your big... I don't know any other answer. I've been called by Christ to go out and present the gospel and make disciples of all nations because of what Christ has done in my life. That's it. I don't have any other answers for you. I know that in the business model, this will fail. But that's okay, because in Christ's model, it doesn't. And so here's the thing. Paul comes in, he says, I came to you, and you remember my last message, which was last week, I talked to you how Paul came from Thessalonica, or not from Thessalonica, but from uh, uh, Athens, and he had gone into Athens, and he tried to use persuasive words. He used their poets in his message in order to present God, was very, you know, suave with his words, very intricate with his words. He was, he was very, he was using persuasive words to try to introduce them to God. But we understand, according to um, um, Acts chapter 17, that not many people came to know the Lord. Not many people came to, there was a couple that came to know the Lord. But Paul tried to use a lot of excellency of speech. He tried to use the wisdom. He tried to, to be very ingenious in going, hey, here's a statue to every other God that's out there. Except, and then there's one here to the unknown God. I want to talk to you about the unknown God. Wow, what a, I mean, to me and to you, I, I look at that and go, dude, that's pretty impressive to think that you came up with that on the spot. And yet, because of the ingenuity of Paul and him using their words and using their unsaved poets in order to present the gospel, not many people came to know the Lord. And then the very next place that he goes is Corinth. And Paul comes into Corinth, and I believe he learned his lesson. He's coming in, and he's going, you know what? Trying to sway people into the kingdom by using persuasive and wisdom, you know, persuasive words, and, and you know, trying to be very ingenious, it doesn't work. Here's what gets people into the kingdom. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so when I came to you, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. If anybody tries to put anything more on top of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, flee. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Oh, but our founder has this book that you must read with the Bible so you understand the Bible. Hogwash, run. You need Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Oh, but you have to join our sect. You have to join our church. You have to be a part of this. You have to do this, 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 this. And they have this litany of, of, of items that you have to attain in order to be saved according to them. A hogwash. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Do you have a relationship with Him? Jesus made it very simple. God made it very simple for us. Because we as people really know how to screw things up, don't we? We know how to add a lot of things to righteousness, don't we? We know how to go out there and make people feel bad. you got to feel really, really, really bad before you can accept Christ. And when you do, you got to do this, and you better read ten chapters a day, or you're not saved. You better be doing this, or you better have this experience, or you better have that, or you're not in Christ. Well, listen, stop it. Don't add to the Word of God. Don't add to the Word of God. 
Paul comes in, he says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him, him crucified. He goes, I was with, I'm only reading five verses in this chapter. I was with you. He's given his... his was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So he comes in and he says, now here's the thing. The testimony of God. The word testimony you find there in verse 1 is, the, the Greek word is uh, mat, maturion. Maturion, M-A-T-U-R-I-O-N. That's the Greek word, maturion, which literally means testimony, witness, or proof. This literally means the declaration which confirms or makes something known. But there's a little caveat to this. This is a testimony from a first-person experience. This is not simply a regurgitation of facts from secondhand knowledge, from a periodical, from, from somebody else who told you what you know, has happened in their life and that you pass it on and that's the testimony. Not that those things won't work, but Paul is using this. He's saying, listen, this is my own personal testimony. This word mat- maturion literally means this is a personal narrative of intimate and personal knowledge of mine declaring the facts of my own personal experience with the Lord. <clears throat> testimony. That's what you have. That's what I have. If you're a Christian, you have something that nobody else has, and that is your own personal, personal testimony. Where you came from, where you were, what God did in your life to lead you up to a place where you finally came to a place where you bowed your knee to Him. And you recognized it. He sent a gift in His Son, Jesus Christ, to save your soul. And He did. And then, from that point on, here's what God has done in my life. That's testimony. That's intimate, personal knowledge that you have that nobody can take away from you. You don't have to sit here and prove to anybody what God has done or what God hasn't done. Here's what it is. This is what's happened in my life. You can say hogwash all you want, but I don't care. It still doesn't make it of, Ill, you know, of, of no effect because it happened in my life. You can tell me, oh, you didn't experience that until you're blue in the face, and it doesn't mean anything. It just means you're foolish that are telling me that things have happened in my life that are not real. I know that they're real. And that's the thing that bothers non-Christians. That's what bothers the agnostics. That's what bothers the atheists is because they're going, surely those things didn't happen. But there has to be in the back of their mind, and I believe it's there because I believe that God has placed eternity, according to what the Word of God says, He's placed eternity in mankind's heart. And I think that many atheists, many agnostics are sitting here going, please, someone prove to me that this is true. And the one thing they can't argue with is personal experience. Oh, they might be able to debate you and argue you out of a, a, a point and feel good going home, going, wow, I really put them under the table because they weren't able to debate me well enough. The one thing they can't debate. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, but now God has saved my soul, and this is what has happened in my life since. I can't argue with that. You know, and they can't argue with it. What was it to you then? It was Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Doesn't mean that we're not going to be in fear. Paul says it. He says, Look, hey, when I was with you in verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Any of you guys ever experienced fear when you share with somebody? I do. Many times. I like the word weakness, though. The, weakness, the, the word weakness here is a word, asthenia. Asthenia in the Greek. Asthenia in the Greek. And what it means is weakness, illness, or the word that I'm going to look at here is impotence. And, and I know that when I say that, 
Every one of you have this Viagra or Cialis commercial that pops into your head right now. And I'm sorry that I just mentioned that. But here's the thing. You turn on a TV right now and inappropriate commercials come on at all hours of the day. Saturday morning cartoons, Viagra. You go, what is this here for? Why are you doing this? Can you imagine back in the 60s, back when I was born, late 60s, not really, I was early 60s. But here's the thing. A commercial coming on and, and, and saying things like they're saying? No! Those things would never happen, but it's just common thing today. I mean, it's common knowledge and it's just there. And they have them on at the most inappropriate times. But here's the thing, guys. They don't really know who their target audience is supposed to be, these stupid commercials shown at the most inopportune times. But here's the thing. We do know what these medicines are created to treat. Sympathets in males, aging men. But aside from medical terminology of impotence, there really is a non-medical use of this word impotence. And it literally means lacking power or strength. Lacking sufficient strength or powerless. And so when, when we look at this word, I wanted to highlight this word because here's the thing. I was with you in weakness. I was with you in impotence. I cannot make you get saved. When you look at this word in that sense, all of a sudden we have maybe even a little more depth to what Paul is saying. I'm here in weakness. I'm here acknowledging that in me, that is in me, I can't, I can't create an effect in you to be saved. And that scares me for you. That scares me for you. And it, it, it deeply affects me. I don't have the power to make you see what I see. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, every parent has wanted to do that with their kid, right? Take your brain out, put it in your kid for just two seconds and download, right? And say, because you obviously are not working with a brain because of what you just did. That doesn't make sense. Well, I thought that, you know, the rock wasn't as heavy when I dropped it off the roof to hit the glass on the ground. I didn't think it would break. Rock, glass, break. Things don't don't match. Take my brain out, put it in. Oh, I better not do this. That's what you'd hope that they would come up with. But they sit there and go, hey, I wonder if this, I think, I think I can do this without a break-in. And they drop it and psh. I'm sorry, I have a little personal thing of what I did back when I was a kid. So here's the thing. What are you thinking? Well, obviously I wasn't. We want to take something out of our head and put it into theirs. Paul says, if I could take my brain out, if I could take what has happened in me and give it to you, you would see and you'd understand. But I am powerless. I'm powerless to affect a change in your life. I can't do it. I can't make you know Christ. I can't make you believe in God. I can't make you believe and accept the free gift that God has given to you. I can't make that happen can't do it jesus said in john chapter 6 verse 44 no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and i will raise him up on that last day here's the thing i can't make somebody come to god only god can do that work be free christian it's not your job to save anyone it's just simply your job to live your life Live your life as a Christian. Represent Christ. Walk out there. Be free. Enjoy your life with the Lord. Enjoy your life on a day-by-day basis with Jesus Christ. Live your life. I don't have to save anyone. I just have to go out and represent Him to the world. I need to go out and take Him out there so that the world could know Him. Well, I don't believe in Him. Hey, I hope one day you do. Let me tell you what He's done in my life. There's no argument there. And when they sit there and they see your life and there is change in your life, though they may rebut at that time, the Spirit has come in. And though you have maybe planted a seed, maybe you have watered a seed that somebody else has planted, the Spirit begins to do the work. And as the Spirit begins to do the work in those hearts that seem to be non-receptive, 
There are some of you in this room that had been preached to and witnessed to many times before a year, two years, five years, maybe 15 years down the road or longer that you finally came to a place where you're going, what have I been running from? I want Christ in my life. How can I have this? But it all starts with a seed. It all starts with people watering it along the way. God's called us to share our testimony. And our testimony is Jesus Christ and him crucified has changed my life. He's changed my life. He's done something in my life that I can't explain. But I want you to know it and it's available to you. It's for you too. Why? Because look, it says here, my speech, verse 4, my speech and preaching were not with persuasive words, human wisdom, but in demonstration. He's saying, watch me. Look at my life. Look at what I'm doing. I'm walking in the Spirit. This is what I'm doing. Look at what God has done in my life. That's the demonstration of the Spirit. I, you can't refute what God's doing in my life. You can't refute this walk, the steps that I'm walking. I'm a changed man. There's something different about my life. And, and, and so here's the thing. It's not me by me saying the words. It's by me doing the words. It's not me just saying the things. It's by me actually doing them and living them. Because in so doing, your witness becomes a very powerful thing in the hands of a holy God who is desperate to see those people that we come in contact with on a day-by-day basis. He's desperate to see him saved. God loves mankind. That's why he died for him. We know the verse, Romans 5, 8, right? God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't because we were good that he came. It was because we were in sin. None of us deserved his grace. But he loved us anyways, and he came and he provided a way. And as much as he saved your soul, he wants to save Mankind. The Bible tells us, hey, God is not willing that any should repent or should, should uh, perish, right? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Who is that? Who is all? It's all. That's it. In the Greek, it means all. He wants everybody to be saved. And so it's his work to do it. It's your job and my job to do what it is that he's called us to do. We live by Jesus Christ and him crucified. Matthew points it out in Matthew chapter uh, 4. He says this, look at what he says. Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5. You can jot this note down you, if you look it up real quick. You're, I'm going to be out of here real quick. But Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. Jesus speaking, he says, you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill, it can't be hidden. Right? Cities on a hill can't be hidden. They're up there for everybody to see. For this coming in even close to that hill, they see a city up there, the lights of it, and they go and they're attracted to the light. There's a city over there. I'm a wayfaring stranger out in the middle of a wilderness. I see a light over there. It's on top of that hill. And I'm going to make a beeline to there because that's where I'm going to find life. Out here, I'm going to find death. There, I'm going to find food. I'm going to find sustenance. I'm going to find rest. I'm going to go to the light. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill is not hidden. And so you as a Christian, the inference is, don't be a hidden Christian. God never asked any of us to become secret service believers. Right? He never asked any of us to be, you know, those, those secret service spy Christians. We're spies. Nobody knows who I am. I'm a double agent in the world and of Christ. Man, I thought you were in the world all along. <laughs> yeah, I was. But I was a Christian. All along, you just didn't know it, and I didn't want to let you know because, because why? Well, because I had a job to do. What job? Failure? Failure to do what it is that Christ has called you to do. When Jesus gives a command, you know, go into the world, preach the gospel. 
Baptize him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's not just talking to pastors, gang. He's talking to all of us. He's talking to all of us. He says in verse 15, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. How silly that would be. But they put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. And so Jesus uses a lamp and a light and a city as an illustration to say, this is who you are in the world. You understand? He says, so now let me bring in the application. He says in verse 16, so let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and then they glorify your Father in heaven. Why? Because the works that you do are not for you, about you or for you, but they're about the Lord. If you and I are truly shining bright for, for Christ, we're representing Him. We're not representing us. We're representing Him. And when we represent Him, we are in fact a light to a very dark world. A light to a very dark world is that dark world that this person is out wandering in the wilderness that will die in and he sees the light that we are and like a moth he's attracted to it. Let me hurry. And so what do we do? John chapter 15, very, very quickly. I had you turn there. I'm going to just read a couple things very, very quickly and then we'll get going. But Jesus speaking. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may even bear more fruit. There's so much filled here that I would love to stop and talk about, but I just don't have the time today. Jesus says, you're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me then, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself... You hear what it said? A branch, who's the branch? We are. Right? The vine dresser is God. Who's the vine? Who's the root? Who's the stump? It's Jesus, right? And the branches are attached to the, to the, to the vine, right? We are attached to Christ. What happens when you prune off a, a branch off of your, your tree? off your vine, and you take it off on its own, what happens to it? Yeah, that's right, it dies. But if it's attached to the vine, it grows as well as the vine grows, right? As, as well as the root of the vine grows. Jesus says, well, I'm the root of the vine, and I grow well. All right? I may prune you back a little bit. There might be some times in your life where I shave some things out of your life in order to make you more fruit-bearing. But trust me, I know what I'm doing. Okay? He says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Jesus gives the application. He says, Neither can you unless you abide in me. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Do you understand that? We can't do anything apart from Christ. If we separate ourselves from Christ, and how we separate ourselves from Christ is when we launch out on our own to do things for the Lord in our own flesh, right? We launch out there and we're trying to save people in our own strength and we get tired and our tongues start dragging on the ground because we're weary. But here's the thing. Jesus says, you keep yourself attached to me. You keep yourself attached to me and watch but that I don't bear fruit in your life. You watch me. You do what I tell you to do. You go where I tell you to go. You grow as I give you the nutrients. If we're attached to Christ, our fruit bears greatly. And that fruit is awesome. The thing about this is, guys, listen. As we are attached to the Lord. We grow personally, individually. We, we grow in knowing how to witness to people and share what Christ has done in us. But as we do, 
and we rely more on the Lord, we just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so here's the thing. You know, my mom used to have a, uh, uh, and I say this, my mom passed away back in 2006. But when I grew up, my mom wanted a vegetable garden, and so I made her a vegetable garden in the back of our garage. I cut a trench out there, put in uh, uh, irrigation out there, fully put in underground irrigation for her, and then planted, you know, tilled up all the ground and everything, put some good nutrients in the ground and some different soil in there to make it really, really rich and nutritious, you know, for the plants that we were going to plant. And then I went in there and put it on a timer, you know, and I had some things that were getting a lot of water, some things that weren't getting so much water, and then I planted all the different plants in there, tomatoes and and and, and carrots and, and uh, a watermelon, and uh, 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 we had cucumbers, and we had uh, zucchini. Tried to grow strawberries, didn't work. But as, as I'm trying to grow these things, some things grow, some things don't. Strawberries didn't grow for me. I've had a problem with strawberries. Tried to grow them here in Florida. Got little thingies, and then that's it. No strawberries. I fed the bees and the birds. And so there's certain fruit that does come out. I did take some of those little things and eat them and go, that was good. Just grow more. Come on, man, grow, grow, grow. I couldn't make them grow. But the taste that I did have was delicious. And so sometimes the fruit that God produces in our life is is fruit that is really only for us, right? It's fruit that we feast on and we go, man, this is good. This is good. And so that fruit, you know, maybe you don't have a big crop, and, and maybe it's enough that just feeds your, your, your home, you know. And that's okay. It's fruit for your family. My mom used to always tell her friends, oh, you've got to see my garden. And I always ta- teased my mom. I said, how much did you have to do with that garden, Mom? Well, it's my garden. Yes, it is. I, yeah. Did you ever till a ground? No, I go out there and, and, and pick the fruit, though. So mom was like the, the vine dresser, you know. I mean, she was a vine dresser. I was the, 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 the slave under. I used to tease her about it all the time. My garden, mom? Okay, our garden. Does that make you feel happy? No, <laughs> we joke about it. I miss that woman. Here's the thing. The fruit that we had, we would use for our own home. Fruit sometimes grows big. I, I brought a picture in here of, of uh, you know, and, and thinking of Gary and Marianne. You know, here, here uh, these are avocados. I love avocados. I love avocados. I do. My brother, that's my brother holding on to it. And, and, and my brother Dave is from Michigan, and he came down. We met up in Kissimmee, and he, bought, he loves avocados too. He didn't know I was bringing avocados, but he brought them because he wanted to make his guacamole. And he, he brought his, his avocados out. And, and I said, that is not an avocado. He goes, what do you mean? I said, that, get those things out of here. Those, aren't even, those, are, those are shameful to even be called avocados. I'm going to bring you out an avocado. He goes, what, you got avocados? I said, yeah, I, I got avocados to end all avocados. And I brought it out, and you should have seen his eyes. He's going, oh, my goodness. Take the next picture. That's how big the seed was. I mean, the seed was as big as his Haas avocado. And the meat in the, in the avocado was far better than that Haas avocado he got. Man, I'm telling you, the best taste in avocados I've ever had in my life. Gary and Marianne. You know what Gary and Marianne would do? They'd have so many avocados. They'd start coming in here with bags. You want some avocados? I, mean, I think maybe even to a point where people are going... No more avocados, okay? Too much avocado. I can't, I mean, avocado, you, 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 there's not many more dishes I can come up with that have avocado in it. I'm one of those guys that just cuts the thing down the middle and pops a seed out and throws a little salt and pepper on it and just munches it down, man. It's great. Just fresh avocado that way. But, like, you know, zucchini can get out of control, right? Zucchini can get out of control and just go nutso, you know? 
Some of the zucchini that I grew, you know, you'd have it, you know, and I hated squash until later on in my young adult life. My mom was kept making it, and all of a sudden I started loving it. Zucchini and squash together. And, and that was part of our garden back there. And it grew and grew and grew and grew. And, and though we as a family, we had some, you ended up starting to find people. You were trying to find people on the road. Would you take some zucchini, please? Here. Oh, you know, it's like a huge thing. If you don't get it off the vine, man, these things just get huge. Here. Boom. Feed all your relatives. And, and so, so here's the thing. You're free. You can go back. But here's the thing. The fruit that God has do, is doing in your life. He's called us to be attached to Him. And the fruit that comes out of that is what He nourishes us with. He grows us. You know, there's one thing that I never, ever, ever heard when I went to the, my mom's garden. I never went out there in the middle of growing season and I never heard zucchini going... Ugh. Because I'm trying to grow. I'm going to grow bigger. Bigger. No, they don't do that. They just sit there. They abide. They abide. They allow the nutrients from the vine to pass into them and they grow as big as the vine wants them to grow. They produce the fruit that the vine wants them to produce. The moment you cut that fruit off, it stops growing, right? But fruit is meant to be shared, right? Fruit is meant to be enjoyed. Fruit is meant to nourish. Sometimes the fruit that we have in our life is, is sometimes there's a lesson there and it's grown me up. I don't know that I necessarily like that fruit that much. I'm not going to eat that fruit very often. But the Lord has done a work in it. The fruit is there to nourish us and to grow us. But the fruit is there. As we abide in him, the fruit continues to grow. It continues to grow to plenteousness to a point where there's more than enough for you. And now go and share this fruit that I've done in your life with those around you. You see, it's the picture-perfect illustration for us as Christians. I didn't do anything to become saved other than just respond to what the vine did in my life. But now to go out and spread this fruit around, share it with others, let your light so shine, go out there and minister, go and do these things. You don't have to do anything other than just be you. Just be you. Just love people. Just let Jesus work in and through you. Give me three or four more minutes and then I'm done. But here's the thing. Let Jesus work through you because this is the most powerful instrument that you have to witness to people in the world. It's what God has done in you. I can sit here and say, I don't agree with that avocado. But that avocado is big whether I want to believe in that avocado or not. I can't negate what happened. I don't believe that avocados can grow that big. Well, it's big. It is big. This is the fruit. Thank you. This is the fruit of the vine of that avocado tree. Well, I don't believe that avocados can get that big. Well, here's, here, it's done it in my life. Look at me. This is what God's done in my life. Yeah, well, I just don't believe it. Well, look. You see, what God has done in your life is fruit bearing. Are you a fruit bearing individual? Or are you a thorn? Are, are, you, are you a non-bearing, fruitless vine? If so, knock it off. Knock it off. Christ did not save your soul for you to be silent about what fruit He's bearing in your life. You're hoarding the fruit to yourself. Give it out. Give it to others. You don't have to do anything other than just be you. I know that the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, hey, 
doing everything that you can do to, to serve the Lord, then stand, he says. Taking on the full armor of God, but stand. You don't have to do anything, stand. But wait a minute, Pastor Don, doesn't Paul also say in 1 Timothy chapter uh, uh, 6 that you're to fight the good fight? So how do you fight the good fight if you're just standing? You can't fight and stand. Those are contradictory terms. No, because you can stand up for the lost and the lonely. You can, you can stand down when praise starts coming your way and you can stand down and point that praise to Christ. You can stand aside and let others go first and be blessed over and above yourself. You can stand out as a believer, as a light. Stand out for Jesus. You can stand in. You can, you can, you can stand in the gap for people. But the one thing I would encourage you all and exhort you all not to do is just stand around. Not just stand around as a Christian. 